This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, helps you build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. Check out The Noom Kitchen for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This is The Polls, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. In 2021, a woman, we're calling her Betty Smith, started secretly recording her doctor's appointments. She ordered special glasses to do this, frames with a tiny camera built in. But after a couple of times, she just switched to her smartphone. It's really easy to push record on your phone and just hold it in your lap and like talk to the person and they don't know you're recording. Betty used to be a nurse practitioner. She didn't feel good about spying on other people working in the medical field, but she felt like she had no other choice. I have been gaslit for so long. It's just really hard to trust anybody in medicine. She has so little trust in the medical system, she asked us to use a different name to protect her identity. Her trouble started in 2018. She was getting her PhD in cognition when she woke up with swollen knees. She's always been an active person, so this was worrisome. I was in severe pain. I was in tears. After a month of appointments, an MRI, and an injection, one doctor concluded that she had severe arthritis. Betty asked whether it could be related to an autoimmune condition. The doctor didn't think so. Then, over the summer, Betty dealt with dizzy spells, an irregular heartbeat. She saw more doctors. The default is, oh, well, you're a stressed-out grad student. I heard that so many times. Eventually, she got a diagnosis from one of her doctors, sarcoidosis. It's a rare and serious inflammatory condition. During that same time, she was also diagnosed with breast cancer. Ductal carcinoma in situ, which is a localized form of breast cancer. She eventually had a mastectomy. The cancer had been kept at bay, but her health in general continued to decline. I got really sick, and I was sleeping 20 hours a day. And her list of diagnoses kept growing, neuropathy and lipodystrophy. She was unable to keep up with grad school and her research, so Betty applied for disability benefits. She was denied. And I started reading the denial letter. The judge was writing all of these things, like, well, she's not complaining of all of these symptoms. And I'm like, well, yes, I have. It seemed like the judge was talking about somebody else entirely. So Betty did something she had never done before, requested her medical records, the material the judge used to make his decision. And she was stunned. Holy crap. Nobody from the beginning, nobody got my story right. Medical records are an important part of healthcare. They create a history of past issues, test results, and prescriptions. They paint a picture of somebody's general health. But they are not always accurate. They can also be frustrating for providers to fill out, fragmented, and challenging for patients to piece together. On this episode, setting the record straight how medical records shape treatment, how access to them can help and hinder care, and why hackers love them. 
To get started, medical records are especially important when people have serious illnesses or several health issues that require coordination between multiple providers. When Betty Smith tried to piece together her own records to get a better sense of what was going on with her, she found a lot of surprises and errors. Grant Hill has more on her story and the growing pains that have come with patient access to these records. From cave paintings depicting injuries to diagnoses scratched onto papyrus in ancient Egypt, documentation has been part of medicine for millennia. And as modern medicine evolved in the U.S., note-keeping became more and more important. As care got more complicated, notes became a way to transmit information from one clinician to another. Kate DeRoche has spent much of her life researching medical records. In the beginning, notes were really used as a way for clinicians to just chart the story of what was happening. Culturally, those notes were the province of the clinician. They were the clinician's thoughts. They belonged to the clinician. These notes are not for patients. Eventually, medical records took on another role. They became the primary way physicians got reimbursed from health insurance companies, like a receipt for services rendered. But patients didn't really have access to any of this information until more recently, something Kate has been working to change. She heads a nonprofit organization called Open Notes. If you give patients this information, it helps them feel engaged, it helps their family members, it helps them know what to do next, their important safety benefits. The first major step in this direction came in 1996 with the passing of HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. It was a sprawling piece of legislation, but for Kate, this was the most important aspect of it. It gave patients a legal right to their medical record. In practice, medical records remained elusive for patients. Health systems struggled to comply or were reluctant to grant access. If you hang on to a patient's information, it's harder for that patient to go somewhere else. Kate says the process to obtain medical records was deliberately made difficult, expensive, and opaque. So you would have to trek down to the basement, go to the health information management office, sign a form um, in person. You often had to pay some amount per page. As more and more healthcare providers switched to electronic records, Many adopted systems that were not compatible with those used by their competitors. It's the reason why some of the brightest medical minds in the world still communicate through fax machines. Today, there is still no one central place where all of a patient's medical records live. Rather, bits and pieces exist in isolation, within different files, in different systems— which can make it hard to put together a comprehensive picture. That's what Betty Smith was faced with when she decided to finally collect her entire medical record together in one place. Like, this is a stack that I took out of a banker's box full of notes. When I met up with Betty recently, she was rail thin, using hiking poles to walk. It's hard for me to move around. She says her appearance hasn't changed much since she had first been denied disability benefits. What did change was her attitude. The denial made her start to question everything, including her own sanity. What was wrong with her health, really? Was she not as sick as she felt? She needed to find out. 
Collecting the fragments of her medical record held by her various doctors meant hours of combing through electronic portals, emailing hospitals, downloading, printing, downloading, printing over and over again until she filled an entire storage bin. So uh, these start back in 2018. As a former nurse practitioner, Betty was undeterred by all the medical jargon. Line by line, she pieced together the story hidden within the notes. Her symptoms had often been downplayed or mischaracterized altogether. June 15th of 2018, the notes from the physician and the PA at the emergency room both said that I was denying shortness of breath, even though that's pretty much the reason why I went. From doctor to doctor. June 20th. It's written that I was breathing 28 times a minute and my pulse is 52 beats a minute. Now, anyone who's breathing that quickly is going to have a pulse that's at least double that. From hospital to hospital. February of 2020, I was having so much pain I couldn't walk two blocks and I told him that. And the, the note says she is not at the point where walking a few blocks is painful. Betty kept finding small errors and inconsistencies that, over time, snowballed into something much larger, an entirely new story. Each person just sort of embellished what the last provider had written. In real life, Betty was debilitated. But on paper, Betty's symptoms seemed far less obvious and far less persistent, creating what she calls a creeping narrative. Where the story that's being reported doesn't resemble my lived experience. It's unrecognizable. And I found all sorts of things, like entire... There were answers to questions that she had never been asked. Measurements noted as normal that clearly were not, as if entire sections were copied and pasted from a template. This was the information the judge had used to determine whether she qualified for disability benefits. And even more worrisome to Betty... It was the information doctors were using to make key decisions about her care. If they had listened, my sarcoidosis could have been diagnosed sooner. Instead, Betty says her symptoms were chalked up to stress. If they don't know what's wrong with you, the default is there's nothing wrong with you. You just have a psychological problem or you're attention-seeking or you're malingering or, you know, fill in the blank. And I'm not saying everyone is that way, but I've certainly encountered that multiple, multiple times. Everywhere she went, she felt like her doctors weren't taking her seriously. This revelation in her records might explain why. Now, she wanted to prove it. So Betty ordered those secret spy glasses, the ones with the camera built in, and started wearing them to her appointments. She wanted to collect concrete evidence that the vital signs showing up as normal in her medical records were not actually being measured. Indicators like respiratory rate, how many breaths you take per minute. It's measured simply by looking at a patient and counting their breaths for 60 seconds. Betty knew her respiratory rate was low. She had measured it herself. But again and again in her records... But her respiratory rate was 16 today. Average. Normal. Weird. She thought. So the next time I went to my doctor, I held my breath. Meaning her rate should be especially low in the note if she was actually being observed. And when she got her note back, it said her respiratory rate had somehow increased. 
Research suggests mistakes in medical records are all too common. In 2018, a researcher at Harvard Medical School randomly selected over 200 medical records and found over 40% of those signed by physicians contained errors. Politicians knew this was a problem. So in 2016, another sprawling bill was signed into law that would finally allow patients to do their own oversight of the records, the 21st Century Cures Act. It required immediate electronic availability to patients upon request for all test results, medication lists, and clinical notes. I sort of joke about that it was, you know, a five-year-long conversation about what the word all means. That's advocate and researcher Kate DeRoche again. The rules pertaining to medical records in the Cures Act were implemented in stages, finally taking full effect in the fall of 2022. But over a year into its implementation, Kate says it's still hard to know what, if anything, has changed from this unfettered access. There's not a ton of reliable data about it. There's been a lot of kind of arguing in the social media world, mostly between clinicians who say this is terrible and some clinicians who actually say it's fine and patient advocates who are like, no, I need to have this information. In the meantime, Betty Smith is still trying to correct her record to request amendments and file disagreements to her notes, which is its own uphill battle, she says. What does it feel like to go through all my medical records? It's distressing. The process to change or add information to notes is time-consuming and not necessarily a foolproof solution. Betty found that her amendments and disagreements to specific notes were often just tacked on to the end of her entire record, like independent documents. So none of the disagreements were appended to the corresponding notes. And I asked one of the physicians, I said, did you see any of the disagreements? No, I didn't see any disagreements. But Betty is not angry, not at those taking the notes at least. I don't blame them. I blame the people who are tasking them. She hopes her conflicting narratives hold a valuable lesson for patients and providers. When it comes to medical records, trust, but verify. I think there's sort of an inherent, I mean, bias is the kindest word, but arrogance, frankly, in assuming that if another physician wrote it, it has to be right. That story was reported by Grant Hill. This is the polls who are talking about medical records and how they impact healthcare. For patients, the information in medical records can look confusing, hard to decipher. And turns out, it can feel the same way for physicians. I look for something and I don't know where it is, or it may be under the wrong label or the wrong section of the chart, or the date may be mislabeled. That's primary care physician Netta Freja. She practices in Maryland. She says despite the problems, medical records are absolutely vital to her work. I interact with patients' medical records all the time. During a patient visit, she uses them to document everything she observes or issues they discuss. But the records also help her prepare. And the more extensive somebody's medical history is, the longer that takes. 
So for some of my more complicated patients with complicated medical histories, I may spend 30 to 45 to 60 minutes before an appointment tracking down all of that information, finding out what every specialist of theirs has been saying and what their plans are for the patient, Um, figuring out what all of the different kinds of test results show, which medications might interact with other medications someone else has prescribed. So yes, the more complicated the person's current medical picture and also their past history, the more complicated their medical record can be to make sense of. Now, when you have a patient who is seeking care in different facilities, as often happens with people who require specialty visits and all kinds of different care, those records don't always speak to each other, right? They don't. And that's a huge source of frustration and also a huge problem. Sometimes I'll have access to some important information through the medical record. Sometimes I'll be able to click on a link that takes me to another medical record with information. But sometimes my office staff is literally calling other offices and asking them to fax us notes and records. So it's really quite cumbersome, and it also can make it very easy to miss important information along the way. Now, on the patient side, people will often see something in their record and think, hold on, that didn't happen. Like, why does it say that I didn't get this service? Or I don't remember this particular part of our interaction. Where do these kinds of ghosts come from that we sometimes detect? Oh, that's such a good question. There are a lot of reasons why that might happen, but all of them are a little bit alarming or maybe even very alarming. So one source for that confusion or that that ghost, like you said, it may be a misunderstanding of what actually happened. It might be that the physician wrote down the wrong thing or understood the wrong thing from the patient or took kind of the the wrong approach based on the information they heard, and they document something that is not consistent with what the patient's own experiences are. So there's just maybe very benign and well-intentioned misunderstandings that might show up in the chart. And that's worthy of a conversation and maybe talking to your doctor afterwards and saying, oh, by the way, I saw this. I just wanted to clarify what I really meant. That's incredibly helpful. Another big reason is that a lot of current electronic medical records use a lot of templates. They use a lot of automated data that's just kind of imported into the note. So for example, a note might have a template for what a normal physical exam might look like, What, how we might document that. You know, the heart sounds normal, there are no murmurs, the lungs sound clear, there's no abnormal breath sounds. They may say, oh, it says here my heart sounds are normal, but my doctor didn't even listen to my heart. That may be one reason why that kind of ghost shows up in the medical record. And also, I guess it's a lot of different people using this document or or this chart, and everybody probably has a slightly different style. Everybody does, you know, put something different in the miscellaneous folder or has a different hack to get around some stupid prefixed thing that you have to get through to get to the next thing. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And there are so many different kinds of 
bells and alerts and things that pop up in the electronic medical record all day long. And then we'll just kind of click, okay, 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 just to be able to move on, just to be able to, you know, try to still take care of the patient in front of us because the electronic medical record keeps being like, but wait, you haven't clicked this, you haven't clicked this. Now, sometimes when we go through our own medical records, we find stuff that's kind of surprising. For example, ways in which physicians have made notes about personality. Like I remember the first time I saw some some doctor had described me as, you know, a pleasant woman who blah, blah. And I'm like, what? what? It was just, I mean, I wasn't insulted, obviously, but I'm like, why is he describing me? You know, so what's that about? Well, I was about to say, Mike, and did they say you were pleasant? <laughs> I was predicting that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> This is a really great question and a great topic of debate, even within the medical community. There have been medical articles written about, should we call our patients pleasant in the notes or not? Uh, Some people feel very strongly that there should be no room at all for any kind of descriptives of the person's character uh, or even appearance or anything at all. It should be extremely dry. It should focus on just the facts. I will share that I do use the word pleasant to describe my patients and my notes all the time, and I do that for a few reasons. One is as a little bit of a of a signal to myself, actually. So if when I see that patient again in the future and I look back on my own notes, when I see that I've referred to them as pleasant, I immediately think, okay, that was a nice encounter. We had a good conversation. I sort of have a certain mindset going into our next appointment. Mm-hmm. The other reason is that it's my tiny little effort to advocate for that patient in the rest of this healthcare system. So if I'm sending that patient to a cardiologist in my community who's extremely busy and they read my note and they see pleasant 40-year-old man coming to see me, they may think, oh, okay, this may be a nice encounter. And so even those tiny little psychological cues, I think, can help lighten a little bit of the cognitive load of the day, let them know that they're in for a pleasant no pun intended, a pleasant encounter, a pleasant conversation. If you leave that word out and you say nothing, so if you don't say pleasant, does that also mean something in your notes? It'll depend on the person. So for me, it does, yes. So if I don't put the word pleasant in there, it's usually, again, a signal just to myself for the future that maybe there was something a little bit challenging about our encounter. Maybe they were really upset with me or the healthcare system. Maybe there was a moment of friction. It's more a clue when I see them again that I just need to maybe have a different level of expectation. Uh, I need to potentially be on my guard a little bit more. It is kind of a, a little secret coded message really just for myself. It does not mean they're unpleasant. So (laughs) I will never say somebody is unpleasant ever. It just means that maybe there was something about the interaction that didn't go well. Netta thinks overall the fact that patients now have access to their medical records, including immediate test results, is a good thing. But it does create some issues. The timing of it is tricky because it may be that my patient sees their lab results as soon as they're available and 
in that moment, I'm seeing another patient, and I don't get to see that lab result until later in the day. And so there can be a delay between what the patient sees and then what their doctor sees. And sometimes in that delay, there's room for a lot of anxiety to build up. It can be anxiety-provoking to see an abnormal test result and not know what it means and not have the doctor that ordered that test explain it to you. And so that's something that we're all navigating. I mean, I recently had this happen with a with a mammogram where I got something and I'm like, ah, <laughs> what is happening? You know, and then my, <laughs> my OBGYN was like, all right, I'm getting 4,000 phone calls about this. It's blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know? totally. So I could tell there was this kind of like, okay, sit down. We'll talk about it. It's okay. The main message that I got was like, okay, take a deep breath. It'll all be fine. I can talk to you at three o'clock, you know, but yes, <laughs> it was, I just remember that like immediate your heart rate goes up. You're like, what does this mean? Something is wrong. Something is wrong. Probably 80 to 90 percent of the time. That's exactly what I'm telling my patients, too. This is OK. This is this is not medically worrisome. You're going to be OK. I'll explain everything. Most of the time, that's what it is. A very small percentage of the time, it's something actually really bad where we need to have a full bad news kind of conversation. And I would guess, especially when the news is bad, you want to be the one to give it. Absolutely. To provide the context, to provide reassurance, to provide a plan moving forward. Sometimes I may get a bad test result for one of my patients, and I immediately get to work before I even call them to line up some resources to say, okay, I think they need to see an oncologist. Does this wonderful oncologist I know have any openings that they can fit this person in? So I'll get working maybe even before I call the patient to talk to them because I want to offer some kind of a plan. So it's not just this giant piece of bad news without any follow-up built into it. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think having that conversation directly is so important for so many reasons. Looking through medical records, monitoring test results, and answering patients' questions can increase the workload, so much so that Netta says it has had a big impact on physicians' work-life balance. It is really incredibly time-consuming. There was a study that showed that in primary care, physicians spent just as much time working in the medical record after hours as they did in patient care. So a 15-minute visit leads to 15 minutes of documentation and charting. You multiply that across an eight-hour day, and it really is hard to imagine how a person can continue doing that for years or decades on end. So yes, this has contributed tremendously to the burnout we feel. We want to see our patients. We want to be able to take care of patients and not click endless boxes and silence countless alerts and try to connect with another medical record system that then doesn't connect and so on. That's Neda Freha. She's a primary care physician and internist in Maryland. She's the host of the Primary Care Reviews and Perspectives podcast for Hippo Education. Coming up, what happens when hospitals get hacked and medical records are compromised? It was probably my most stressful time period I've ever had in my life. 
That's next on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about medical records. Doctors and patients aren't the only ones interested in these files. They are a valuable target for hackers. The number of cyber attacks on healthcare providers in the U.S. has gone up steadily in recent years, exposing the personal health data of millions of patients. Researchers estimate that there have been hundreds of data breaches at health providers every year over the last decade. How do providers respond to these attacks and prevent more in the future? Alan Yu has more. One night in October 2020, neurologist Kaylee Kinnaman got a text from her colleagues at the University of Vermont Medical Center. The hospital serves around a million people in the region. Their computers were not turning on. They could not access the files on patients, like treatment history or test results. A few people were still logged into working computers. They started frantically printing out all the patient information they could. The next day, none of the computers were working. Providing care became a major challenge. Almost everything that we do is computer-based. That's where we document all of the notes, so everything that the patients say to us in the morning when we see them, you know, what the plan is for the day. Every order, so meaning like the instructions to either nursing or lab or respiratory therapy. Hackers had taken and encrypted the hospital's data and demanded that the hospital contact them if they wanted the data back. The hospital did not comply. Instead, they called the FBI. The hospital IT staff shut down their network to prevent the damage from spreading. Kaylee says the medical staff had to immediately switch to using paper records. Each patient had like a binder, like all of their notes, like who was their primary team. And those things would get full pretty quickly. Because as you can imagine, like for a week-long hospitalization, like that's a ton and a ton of paperwork. Up to 50 pages for each patient each day. Everyone had to go back to writing out notes by hand. 
That meant having to learn how to read each other's handwriting again. Doctors notoriously have bad handwriting, so it actually made communication much, much more difficult. They took less detailed notes, and each patient visit took longer. They also had to walk to the lab to ask for tests and to get test results. Oftentimes, in the ICU, we'll get labs back within an hour or so, and it was slowing that down four to five times slower than usual. You know, at best, we were getting labs back like five to six hours later. And some of the treatments really benefit from having quick test results. For instance, doctors sometimes use lab results to decide what fluids to give certain patients. Now they had to make do with other measurements that they could do by the bedside. It was probably my most stressful time period I've ever had in my life. It was really hard because you knew that you weren't providing the best care that is available, right? You didn't have near as much time because you were spending so much time like doing administrative tasks that are usually managed by the computers. In September 2023, Stephen Leffler, president and CEO of the hospital, testified about the attack before Congress. The cyber attack was much harder than the pandemic by far. The cyber attack, while it did not affect our patient information, did infect 1,300 servers at the University of Medical Center and 5,000 desktop computers. Every single computer needed to be wiped clean and then re-imaged. He said it took so much work to bring the system back up, the state government sent a National Guard cybersecurity team to help scan computers for malware. By and large, the hospital and clinics kept running, albeit with some tweaks. Early in the cyber attack, the first two days, we didn't have a phone system because our phone is on the internet. We literally went to Best Buy and bought every walkie-talkie they had. The hospital had good backups for all the data and brought the system back after a few weeks. Nate Kusher is the hospital's chief information security officer. He says they now have better plans for handling cyber attacks like that, including a backup communications platform that does not rely on how many walkie-talkies they can buy at a moment's notice. He also says the technology has improved. Doing a better job of providing kind of like a black box like you have in a plane crash about what the threat actor actually did that helps you really tie down what's occurred in the environment so that as you unravel it, you have that plan to walk backwards from. Laws have also changed. Last year, the Food and Drug Administration implemented a rule that says medical device manufacturers have to follow stricter guidelines on how to keep their products secure from hackers. There have been so many ransomware attacks on hospitals that most are better prepared for them by now, says cybersecurity expert Pam Dixon. I've not talked to a healthcare provider in the recent past that is not fully redundant and has cloud backup, has all sorts of other backup on tapes. They have multiple backup systems in place now. So I think ransomware is actually becoming much less effective. She's the founder of World Privacy Forum and has been studying data security and privacy issues for around 20 years. One report released last year found that the majority, almost 60% of healthcare IT professionals say they restored their data from backups after a ransomware attack without paying a ransom. 
However, it's not just the immediate concerns about computer systems, providing care for patients under duress, and paying ransom. These attacks can have direct and lasting impacts on patients. For instance, Pam says hackers still value the contents of medical data as targets. Let's say you can make $2,000 from a credit card fraud. You'd be lucky if you could today, but let's say you do. Contrast that with what you could make from a systemic health information fraud, which is $100 million or more. She says if hackers get one person's medical data, they could use it for identity theft. And if they get a lot of healthcare data, they could work with shady doctors to change someone's medical record so a patient now has an expensive disease like diabetes or hepatitis C. The shady doctor can tell an insurance provider that they treated the patient for this non-existent condition. Let's say you bill $20,000. So the healthcare provider will then just pocket that money. Meanwhile, the patient is sitting at home or wherever and they have no idea this has happened. Pam says there are always more ways for criminals to exploit healthcare data. For example, she says there is research on how people can just buy healthcare data that, in theory, should not have any personal details attached because of privacy protections. But they can cross-check that with other data sets, like voter lists, to get around the privacy rules and find out the names and addresses of people in the health data. In the meantime, Pam says patients should sign up for electronic medical records if they can, and check their health records every once in a while to make sure everything looks good. You don't have to check them all the time, but once a month, once a quarter, definitely check them. And if there's something on there that you either don't understand or have questions about, it's super important to investigate that. And she says people should not send health records to third-party companies like fitness apps because the more people have access to health records, the more risk there is. That story was reported by Alan Yu. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, who can access your medical records legally and for what reasons? Medical records are more easily obtained, for instance, than authorization to go inside someone's house to conduct a search. That's next on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Made in Cookware. Did you know that many popular dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in Made in Cookware? Their carbon steel cookware combines the best of cast iron and stainless clad, gets super hot, and is tough enough for grills or open flames. Remember what great dishes on menus worldwide have in common. They're Made in Made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MadeInCookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N Cookware.com. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Lisa, in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new natural hybrid mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Delta Airlines. When you think about it, half the trips the world takes are trips home, and those at Delta are travelers just like you. That's why they try to make you feel at home long before you even get there. 
On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about medical records. They are private, right? Well, not entirely. Law enforcement can access health records pretty easily. HIPAA, the federal privacy protection legislation, does not cover most state and local police or other law enforcement agencies. And that's become a hot-button issue after the U.S. Supreme Court Dobbs ruling on abortion. More than 20 states have banned or restricted the procedure, and performing an abortion can have legal consequences. This has made the question over access to medical records more pressing. Catherine Sweeney reports from Nashville, Tennessee. I'm on Interstate 24, headed to Carbondale, Illinois. Coming from Nashville, it's a three-hour trek over impressive suspension bridges, past billboards for famous bourbon distilleries, to get to this nondescript building, Choices, Center for Reproductive Health. It's off the main thoroughfare and shares an entrance with a Freddy's frozen custard and steak burgers. You might see the protesters before you see the sign. Before a car can even get into the parking lot, it's stopped by men in bright orange security vests. It's hard to tell if the men are there to help usher people in or convince them not to go. The pamphlets they hand out make it clear it's the latter. Choices is originally a Tennessee reproductive health clinic located in Memphis. That site still offers STI screenings, pap smears, a walk-in clinic for issues like urinary tract infections, but they're no longer able to perform abortions since Tennessee banned the procedure in 2022. When that happened, they were already working to open a second location in Carbondale. We knew we were on a, a time clock to lose abortion. And so we moved very quickly to be able to open a second clinic in Southern Illinois so that we could continue to provide abortion care. That's Choices president and CEO Jennifer Pepper. She says since the organization opened its Illinois clinic in October of 2022, they have served more than 3,500 patients, primarily from neighboring states Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Kentucky. Abortion providers in conservative states, like Choices, have been working around different restrictions for years. But in this heated legal climate, another issue is coming to the forefront. Law enforcement accessing medical records. Jennifer says patients are often mistaken about how private this information is. In a lot of ways, as public health providers, we have really stressed the importance and per perhaps over-stressed the ability of HIPAA to protect people's services or their records because we we didn't want that fear to be a barrier to accessing care. But it's just it, it, it's just not what we've made it out to be. Chris Slobogan, the director of Vanderbilt Law School's criminal law program, says the reason law enforcement has access to these records is because they need to investigate insurance, Medicaid or Medicare fraud. By doctors, by hospitals. Uh, they don't necessarily need to know the names of the patients, but they do need to know what expenditures were made and for what purpose. 
And so they often issue subpoenas to get a hold of that information. Notice he said subpoenas, not warrants. Medical records are more easily obtained, for instance, than authorization to go inside someone's house to conduct a search. Some people find that surprising. I think a lot of people think, well, medical records are perhaps the most private thing about oneself. And in the 24 states that have instituted abortion bans since the Dobbs decision, medical records could become a tool in enforcing the bans. It is not a crime to get an abortion in these states, but it is a crime to perform one. The Biden administration has proposed a rule change to strengthen HIPAA to protect patients' reproductive health care records from law enforcement. Nineteen state attorneys general have pushed back against that proposal, including Tennessee's Jonathan Skirmetti. He said they'd sue the federal government if it came to pass. Jonathan Scrimetti declined to be interviewed or comment for this story, but I spoke to him over the summer when he first came out against the proposal. He said it's another example of the federal government encroaching on states. He also raised some concerns about the scope. This applies to reproductive health care, which means any health care related to a reproductive system or reproductive organs, which of course entails the hot button issues, but it could entail all sorts of other pieces of medical practice. We couldn't investigate a urologist for fraud potentially under this rule. He took issue with the overall premise, emphasizing that under current law, offices like his can't go after patients. Tennessee's laws, and as as far as I'm aware, every other state's laws that has any sort of restriction on abortion targets the provider and absolutely does not target the patients. So that, that's just an entirely baseless bit of fear-mongering right there. Jennifer Pepper of Choices says things are not so clear-cut. The line between investigating fraud and looking into providers or patients, it all gets blurry. She says she's seen this with care for transgender patients, which the clinic also offers. Just a few weeks before the proposal to protect abortion records came out, Jonathan Scrimetti's office subpoenaed a local hospital to get transgender patients' medical records. The providers who referred them, as well as emails to and from the medical center's general LGBTQ health program going all the way back to 2015, according to court documents. This was an investigation into alleged insurance fraud. Jennifer remembers the day that news came out. We had a meeting that morning, kind of just talked what we understood was happening, talked with our legal experts to get things, kind of make sure that we had a plan if they decide to target choices. Again, current laws don't prosecute patients, and they don't go after providers who are performing the procedure in states where it's legal. But abortion access advocates like Jennifer Pepper say the records access would be a major concern if those laws did change. I don't think we've reached the bottom of the barrel, so to say, about how poorly providers and patients are going to be treated in some of our southern and Midwest states around abortion access and gender-affirming care. I think things will get worse. For The Pulse, I'm Catherine Sweeney. Catherine Sweeney is a reporter at WPLN in Nashville. Questions over access to medical records are tricky. And for good reason. They contain the most personal information about us. The fact that this information is generally so heavily regulated can be a challenge for people who provide services for those who are homeless. Kara Cohen is a nurse practitioner in Philadelphia. She provides what's called street medicine, 
on-the-spot care. When she has to send one of her patients to the hospital, she makes sure their medical information travels with them. I have cards that I just give to all of my patients. I like put them on them like Paddington Bear. And I'm like, when you get there, just like show somebody this so we can get some phone calls. That sounds challenging, but at least Kara works in the same system. She's also a healthcare provider. But a lot of others who serve homeless people have no access to any medical information about their clients at all, which can be a big problem. Nicole Leonard has this report on a national pilot project focused on bridging those gaps. People who are homeless often receive support services at shelters or from community organizations that work on housing issues. But when they need health care, they typically have to visit hospitals or clinics. Often, people need both types of services, housing and medical care. But Beth Sandor says there's a major problem. These two different systems designed to help people don't communicate, which creates issues for providers. The people who work in those systems didn't know each other. They didn't understand each other's language. Beth is the chief program officer of Community Solutions, a national nonprofit working to solve homelessness. Beth says when systems operate in silos, it can be really tough for people to get the care they need. It's like a game of shoots and ladders that you complete two steps and then you get brought back to the beginning again. And it's just, it can be demoralizing for people, but maybe more importantly than that, it could be deadly for people. In 2020, Community Solutions launched a three-year national pilot project to address gaps in healthcare for people who are homeless. And medical records have turned out to be part of the issue. One of the pilot sites for the project is Washington County, Oregon, a suburban community on the western flank of the Portland metro area. There, healthcare providers and homeless responders are working to streamline the flow of information about a person's medical and housing needs between different providers. Ruth Atkins is government relations manager at Kaiser Permanente Northwest, a major healthcare system in the region. It's figuring out you know, the, the how we do it, what is the thing that we do that will have the most impact for our vulnerable patients and um, homeless folks in the community, and how do we do it in a way that each of our systems and regulatory frameworks allows within very complex um, environments, right? Ideally, a homeless outreach worker would be able to send information about a client to a hospital system, sensitive private information. On the other end, health providers could then access that data to get a better idea of a person's medical history, their living situation, and current health care needs. Sounds straightforward, right? In reality, it was anything but. Ruth says the process of creating this data sharing agreement involved teams of lawyers and ethical experts on both sides. I mean, we want to make sure we're protecting the rights and data of vulnerable individuals. So each system sort of default is to protect and not release and not share for good reasons. And yet, you know, from my perspective as a non-lawyer, non, you know, non-expert to me, it was like, how can we help people? And this is getting in the way of helping people. When homeless outreach organizations and health systems finally agreed on a way to share information in a secured and protected way, Ruth says that's when they were able to take the next step of actually coordinating care for people. We're able to look at their charts, figure out what their issues are, and then we come together every two weeks 
a patient navigator, other person from the health system, and the homeless case managers for the individuals. And in a trauma-informed, person-centered way, we just huddle and figure out what is, what is this individual's needs? Where is the system failing these folks? Allie Alexander Sheridan oversees homeless response services for Washington County. This could be something like someone has an upcoming cardiologist appointment that's really important that they make it to. This could be someone's currently in the ICU at one of our local hospitals. It could also be we're seeing that this individual has utilized the ED 40 times in the past three months, and they really need to get connected to clinic-based care. For one person, it meant getting their medications delivered directly to the shelter where they were staying. Because coordination teams realized this person wasn't able to make it to a pharmacy 35 minutes away while working full-time. Allie says working closer together as partners in the community has improved both support systems. It's also helping to educate our housing services providers on understanding why is assignment to a primary care physician important for individuals? What other resources are in the healthcare system that we can leverage? She says the data sharing and conferences about individual cases have opened the door to a level of care continuity that really didn't exist before for this population of people. We're coming together and we're saying, someone has an upcoming appointment, or we haven't seen this individual since they've discharged from the hospital and they have a follow-up appointment coming up. Are you engaging with them? How can we get them connected to care? Right now, the data and medical record sharing agreement is a one-way deal. Information from homeless response services goes to healthcare systems. But local responders like Allie hope this is laying the groundwork for a larger coordination effort where information flows both ways. For The Pulse, I'm Nicole Leonard. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Jaden George is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer, and we had additional engineering this week from Adam Staniszewski. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lizarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR.